American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Uh, what's another word for welcome? You just keep saying welcome. That's how we start the show. Can we say something else? No, that's how we start it. Like greetings. Let's go. This is American Timelines. Like this is American Idol. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. This is American Timelines. I'm Amy. And I am Barry Grobble Flitz Packenchurd Smith Stin. No, say that one again. Uh, but people call me Joe Barry for no, short. That's Joe. And we're the podcast that brings you all of the crazy, nostalgic, interesting things that have happened in the past. With And we do that year by year. And I'm a taxidermist. And tonight we are going to discuss the end of 1961. Shirtless taxidermist, y'all. Are you done? And we're going to jump right in. Uh, we left off at the end of September 1961 right. in the last episode. Okay. Um, because I know some people don't want you to just go on about stupid stuff. They want you to just jump right in. That's right. So we're going to jump right into October because we got a lot to get through, folks. And if we don't just jump right in, we might not finish the year. And then there'll be a whole episode just for like three days in December. All right. So what is it? So what is it? It's yep. October 1961. And American Timelines where we talk about... Just everything that happens. If you don't know, just go I back. I thought you just said people episodes. people <laughs> aren't going to want to sit through a bunch of bullshit before we Tuesday, they want us to get started. Tuesday, October 3rd. I just want to rile you up a little bit before I <sighs> do it. Tuesday, October 3rd, 1961. The Dick Van Dyke Show debuted. Oh, okay. That went on for a while. It's an American television sitcom. That initially aired on CBS from October 3rd, 1961 to June 1st, 1966. Yeah, that's With pretty a total good run. of 158 half hour episodes spanning five seasons. Okay. Um, this starred Dick Van Dyke. Yes. And Carl Reiner created it. Um, Mary Tyler Moore was on it. Mm-hmm. It centered on the work and home life of television comedy writer Rob Petrie. Van, it's Dick always Van Dyke. weird when. The show is named after a, 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 the per, the real person's name, but yeah. then the character on the show isn't the same name. Yeah, that that happened all the time. It's in the always 60s, weird. I think. I think that was like the standard because yeah. later we're going to talk about the Joey Bishop show was on and yeah. he played Joey Benjamin or something. What's uh, 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 guy's name? Jack the Jack Benny show. Oh yeah, I think he actually played Jack Benny though. I think his character's name was Jack Benny. But all these shows, they all played writers and like that's funny. Hollywood producers and stuff, which is kind of funny. Uh, anyway. What else? That show premiered, and it was produced by Bill Persky and Sam Denoff. Does, nobody cares. <laughs> Don't you want to know who the show's theme song was written by? No. Well, it was Earl Hagen, so boom. How many Emmy Awards do you think it won in those years? Mm, three. 
15. Boom. Oh, you crazy. don't know anything about the Dick Van Dyke Show. I do not. And then uh, Monday, October 9th, 1961, we have our first number one song on the Billboard charts. And this is Mr. Ray Charles. Sweet. See, see if you know this song. Of course I do. This was written by rhythm and blues artist Percy Mayfield and first recorded in 1960 as an a cappella demo set, sent to Art Rupee. Mm-hmm. It became famous after it was recorded by singer, songwriter, pianist Ray Charles with the Raylettes. And vo- a great one. And vocalist Margie Hendrix is on the song too. It's pretty good. Yeah, Ray Charles is the best. Mm-hmm. He's got the best voice ever. Yeah. I remember when I was a little kid, because he was on Sesame Street all the time. Like, he'd be doing oh, songs yeah. with Muppets and That's stuff. That's right. And I think I originally thought he was just, a, like, a character from Sesame Like, I thought he was, like, Gordon or whatever else. There's the blind like, guy right there. Yeah. And he was real old then, and then I found out later that he was awesome. Yes. And did all kinds of stuff. And that movie Ray starring um, mm-hmm. Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx. He did a great Ray Charles impression. Yeah, he did. He sang it too, I think. He really sang. He did, I think, yeah. 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 She gave me money when I'm a knee. All so right. He sang that. That I was know. his impression kind of thing. Um, anyway, that only lasted on the number, the number one spot until October 22nd. Okay. But that same day that that took over the Billboard charts, mm-hmm. the 1961 World Series uh, wrapped up. Okay. It matched the New York Yankees against the Cincinnati Reds. Boy, the Yankees have always won, huh? No. With the Yankees winning in five games to earn their 19th championship in 39 seasons. So I guess they did. That was a lot. Yeah. This World Series was surrounded by Cold War political puns, pitting the Reds against the Yanks. Oh. But the louder buzz concerned the Eminem boys, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle, who spent the summer chasing the ghost of Babe Ruth in a 60-home-run season of 1927. Mantle finished with 54, while Maris set the record of 61 on the last day of the season. And how come we hear Mickey Mantle's name more than the other guy? Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle? Like, I know Mickey Mantle's name, but I don't know Roger Maris' name. I think Mickey Mantle was really, really good for a long time. Oh, okay. And Roger Maris set the record, so I hear his name a lot. Oh. But maybe not as Mickey Mantle is like a big deal mm-hmm. with the Yankees. Uh, with all the attention surrounding the home run race, the World Series seemed almost anticlimactic. Oh, okay. You remember the year a little bit later in the 90s when um, it was a similar thing when Sammy Sosa and Mike yes. McGuire were doing their home yeah. run race? Same kind of thing here. Yeah. Uh, except these guys probably weren't both all hopped up on roids. Probably not. They were probably drinking and smoking. They were. Everybody smoked cigarettes. It's crazy. How could you play baseball if you smoke cigarettes? <laughs> I don't, I I don't understand that cocaine, at all. I guess probably a lot of cocaine. You think? Yeah, probably, right? I don't know. I don't know. I know they were all fat and smoked. Yeah, <laughs> all the time. that's nuts. But I mean, you think about it. The guys throwing the ball also weren't in very good shape. They were fat smoking guys, too. Yeah. But so, then to run the bases and stuff, it would be hard to do smoking like that. But if everybody smoked, they probably didn't do. They probably they were all slower. They probably, yeah. Everybody was just probably slower and fatter. And yeah. Stuff. It's so, funny. Yeah, it's just a different world. Like now yeah. you have athletes that are super. Like, yeah, they're like androids. Human, yeah. Uh, and then Tuesday, October 17th, 1961, according to UCR.com, 
mm-hmm. ultimate classic rock. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards have known each other since they were little kids. Oh. Uh, before they fell in love with the blues, before they started writing songs, before they formed one of the most famous bands in the world, Jagger and Richards rode tricycles together. I can't remember when I didn't know him, Mick told Rolling Stone in 1995. We lived one street away. His mother knew my mother, and we were at primary school together from 7 to 11. We used to play together, mate, and we weren't the closest friends, but we were friends. <laughs> and I had sex with no, David Bowie. Now you're... Oh, sorry. He did have sex with David Bowie. I know, but you're making some... Anyway, the future rock stars grew, grew up in the town of Dartford on the eastern edge of Greater London. When the Richards family moved to a different neighborhood, Jagger and Richards went to separate schools and saw less of one another. Their paths would cross again on the morning of October 17, 1961, on Platform 2 of the Dartford train station. They bumped into each other after not knowing oh. each other since they were kids. On this date. Jagger was 18, Richards was 17. They were both going to school. If anybody's headed for London or any stop in between, in Dartford Station, you're bound to meet, Richards recalled. The thing about Mick and my meeting was that he was carrying two albums with him, Rockin' at the Hops by Chuck Berry and The Best of Muddy Waters. I had only heard about Muddy up to that point. Jagger was holding records. Richards was carrying his guitar, and the two struck up a conversation about rock and blues on the train. On the way, Richards learned that Jagger had ordered the two albums directly from Chicago's Chess Records, and they were unavailable in England. Excited by their talk and wanting to hear the LPs, Richards invited Jagger over for tea that afternoon, and following that listening session, the budding singer invited the amateur guitarist to join his band. And then the rest... It's history. Was history. They played songs by it's funny Eddie that Cochran, they went, Buddy Holly, invited him over for tea. Yeah, for it's, tea. That, that's yeah. all they, anybody drinks. I know. I might come have some tea, mate. Tea. This is funny. Tea's terrible. Sorry, no, Brits. Not. Tea's not terrible. How often do you drink tea? I used to drink it every day. You did? Like, what happened in those days? What happened? I don't know. I, coffee's got more caffeine in it, probably. This is riveting. Let's keep talking about your caffeine habits. All right. Boom. Just kidding. Um, until 1961, mm-hmm. also the same day, uh, I don't know if you know this, but until 1961, mm-hmm. all YMCAs required swimmers to swim naked. It was just male swimmers, right? Well, there was only men that would go. At the YMCA. Yeah. That's what the M is for men. Oh, that's right. So men all had to swim naked, and the, and the rule only changed because parents petitioned the school board to allow boys to wear swim trunks to swim practice. That's crazy. Yeah. The, the origin of nude swimming can be found well before the guideline was published. When the first indoor pool opened at the Brooklyn YMCA in 1885, the organization required men and boys to swim naked. The club said it banned swimsuits because the common swimsuit was made of wool at the time. Yes. Oh, God. Can you imagine yeah. swimming around in wool? <laughs> wool suit. Uh, and and those, that wool carried all kinds of disease and bacteria, and fibers clogged the pool's simple filtration system, yeah. according to multiple publications. So what kind of filtration system. system was in 1885 uh, or whatever it was? God, it had to be terrible. The pools had to be gross. Others in favor of naked swimming said the practice prepared boys for adulthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, physical education considers that that this experience is a good one for later life. For example, they write the armed services where that's the yeah disregard for privacy is a real is real and serious. Somebody else said, yeah, that um, that's what I had heard. Yeah, boys who refused to swim naked were often ostracized by other boys, and sometimes coaches or instructors documents. Oh, and sometimes coaches and instructors. Um, that's wonderful. 
Ann Landers once chided a boy who wrote to ask her advice about his reluctance to swim naked in front of his peers. She chided him? Yep. She said, you need to talk to a school counselor and learn why you are so uptight about being naked, being seen naked. If you look Jeez. around, you'll find the vast majority of the guys who are showering are not in the least bit self-conscious. That's a w- such a weird thing. Isn't that weird? Yeah. You're not man enough to be naked in front of a bunch of dudes. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, some people did say that. Like Many men don't speak up about their desire for privacy and fear that we mock for not being man enough. God, what a weird thing. Yeah, isn't that weird? Like everyone was just So your naked. grandpa yeah. swam naked. Yeah, he swam naked with everybody else. Yeah. Like if he was alive we could ask him. Did you like that? He probably was everybody did. That's what they did. Yeah, that's probably what he would say. Yep, so in nineteen sixty one more than three hundred and seventy people signed a petition in Appleton, Wisconsin, demanding the school board change its nudes swimming mandate. And one woman was quoted as saying boys were affected morally, physically, and psychologically for forcing them to swim nude. I think so, don't you? Yep. Um, and the, I think the Greenwich Boys Club continued to implement the naked swimming rule until at least the early 80s. Oh, my God. Yep. <laughs> Back, by then, it, they oh, were the weird ones. Yeah, that's really weird by then, yeah. By then, people were like, what? You're swimming nude together? Yep. Yeah, nude. Everybody's skinny dipping? Yeah. You know, if you want to live in Trump's America, you want to make America great again, force everybody to Go back to swim swim naked, naked. swimming naked, and men and women couldn't swim together. That's right. They couldn't. Wednesday, October 18th, 1961, La Bateau is an original Matisse painting Mm -hmm. that was hung in New York's Museum of Modern Art Mm -hmm. for 47 days in 1961 before a visitor pointed out they'd hung it upside down. Oh, that's funny. Isn't that funny? Yeah. How would you know? I guess if it's like an abstract painting. A Matisse. Aren't all Matisse's uh, kind of... He was an expressionist. So, yeah, they are kind of abstract. Yeah, I don't really remember what from period style and form. Shout out to Margaret McCubbin, y'all. Margaret McCubbin was all the right. greatest professor of all time. And then on Wednesday, October 18th, that same day, we have the release of the Best Picture winner that year. You want to guess what won Best Picture in 1961? Oh, did we watch the... We did. We watched the trailer for this. Oh, I can't remember. It's a musical. Sound of Music? Nope. It's the Jets and the... Oh, 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 West Side Story. Yep, West Side Story. That's right. Two youngsters from rival New York City gangs fall in love, but tensions between their respective friends build toward tragedy. Yep, that's right. Wait, is it two dudes? No. Oh, of course not in 1961. Uh, wouldn't that be great? Directed by Jerome yeah. Robbins, Robert Wise, uh, starring Natalie Wood, George Shakiri, Shakiri, Shakiri. You know who that is? George. Sha- How do you spell it? I can't tell from C- what you're saying. C H A K I R I S. George. I don't it's know. Greek, right? Shakiri, 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 Shakira, George Shakira, Shakira, <laughs> and Richard Bamer. Do you know who any of them? Natalie, I know Natalie, Natalie Wood. Wood. She was married to Steve McQueen. She uh, died. She, he and he Robert Wagner. No, they think. Oh, Robert that's the one Wagner. Robert Wagner killed. Yeah, that's right. That whole thing. Mm-hmm. Robert Wagner committed a murder. Well, would, nobody knows for sure, but Natalie Wood. Who do I think of? I, I'm picturing somebody else. Natalie Portman. Anyway, are you familiar with this movie? Did you see it? 
Yes. A side story. So a long when, time ago. When filming the taunting scene, do you know what the taunting scene is? I think it's when they're dancing like they're going to fight. Anyway, Rita Moreno was reduced to tears when she was harassed and nearly raped by the Jets. Oh, no. That's, it, I don't remember that. It brought back memories of when she was raped as a child. When she started crying, the Jets immediately stopped what they were doing and tried to comfort her while pointing out that the audience was going to hate them for what they were doing. Poor thing. Yep. How about this? During the entire production of West Side Story, mm-hmm. the actors wore out 200 pairs of shoes. Oh, my God. They applied more than 100 pounds of makeup. Pounds. I could see that. Well, they, yeah, they and wanted they were a kind of blackface, right? Yeah, yeah. And, or Latino, Latino face. Latino face, is that a, how you say I it? I don't know. They split 27 pairs of pants and performed in 30 different recording sessions. Wow. This was the second highest grossing movie of the year. I always say that wrong. Second highest grossing movie of the year. Robert Wise's original choice to play Tony was Elvis Presley. Oh, my God. That would have been a different movie. Wouldn't that have been a whole different movie yes. all in together? However, Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, refused. Since Elvis would only sing in six of the 12 songs and because he would not have exclusive rights to the soundtrack. Well, because it's a musical first. Uh, yeah, I know. Colonel Tom Parker. I was such a, nut- a money yes. grubbing jerk. Yeah. Psycho. Yeah, crazy person. And then October 23rd, 1961, mm-hmm. we got another number one song. Sweet. Oh, yeah. You know who sings this? Uh, I can't remember. Run Around Sue is the song. Dion. No, I didn't know that. It's a pop song in a modified doo-wop style. It's a great song. Hey. Hey, remember we said earlier it was inspired by that song earlier in the year? Yes, I do. Originally a U.S. number one hit for the singer Dion after he split with the Belmonts. The song was written by Dion with Ertie Maresca and tells the story of a disloyal lover. Yes. And then uh, on Saturday, October 28, 1961, in 1961, at the height of the Cold War, eight-year-old Michelle Rochon mm-hmm. was a firm believer in Santa. Okay. But she worried about his well-being. Okay. During dinner, the young Marine City, Michigan resident had overheard her parents talking about the Russians testing bombs at the oh. North, North Pole. Yeah. You heard of this? No. Oh. So she wrote the following letter to the president. Dear Mr. Kennedy, please stop the Russians from bombing the North Pole because they will kill Santa Claus. Jesus. I am eight years old. I am in third grade at Holy Cross School. Yours truly, Michelle Rochon. But about a week later, Michelle's mom woke woke her up early in the morning. She said... Remember that letter you wrote to President Kennedy? No, don't do a voice. You don't want me to do a voice? No, I don't want you to do a voice. Okay. <laughs> she said, remember no. that. No. <clears throat> Sorry, I just had a frog in my throat. She said, remember that letter you wrote to President Kennedy? Uh-huh. And I said, yeah. And she said, somebody wants to talk to you on the phone. And this is Michelle talking. Well, immediately I thought it was President Kennedy, and I got scared. It wasn't the president, but it was a local radio station who wanted to interview Michelle. The White House had received her letter and had made the contents public, including a picture of the president reading it. 
The wire service picked it up, and Michelle's letter became nationwide news. Wow. Going viral. Yeah. Going viral in 1961. And it probably lasted a little longer than viral things do now. Maybe. When Michelle got to school that day, she was greeted by a number of newspaper reporters, and soon letters started pouring into Michelle from other children all around the world. She was sent gifts. Wow. And adults wrote to her as well, some saying they were Santa Claus, telling her not to worry, and that Santa was going to be fine. She, I bet she got crazy letters. Yes. Nutbags. She also received some hate mail that s- suggested she shouldn't get her hopes up. What? Yeah, hate mail. What in the world? Oh, people what? are fucking crazy. People are fucking assholes. And they always have been. Always. That's nothing new. If Whenever you get discouraged and think we're going down the shitter, just realize moments like this, it's nothing fucking new. I bet she got dick pics. She probably did. Did they send dick pics back then? Did they have Polaroids yet? Because dick pics didn't happen until there was Polaroids. Yeah, because somebody else was... Is, somebody else would have to develop it. Yeah, and they wouldn't. They would just throw it away. Probably. Or they'd call the police or whatever. themselves or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or make anyway. a dub, make two, make an extra. Yeah. Depending on how good it was. Yeah, how how good of a dick pic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are there any good dick pics no, anywhere? absolutely like, not. Is there one? Not like, even can one. Can you even imagine? What would, be a, what would make a good dick pic? Nothing. I can't even. Nothing. Like, there's nothing. Like, would it be like... Like have a spotlight Unless you're on a gay it. man. Gay men would probably love. Like a hat. Maybe gay men probably love dick pics. Maybe it had a hat and like a smiley face no, on it. No, not even that. Like remember that worm that Oscar the Grouch like used to dog. talk to that looked like a worm? Yes. That would. That's, that is exactly like what it would look like. Anyway. Uh, there were, <laughs> it's like a wiener. <laughs> there was one letter that she got that said President Kennedy can't save the world. Nobody can be saved from nuclear bombs. They had a map of the whole world where nuclear bombs were planted. Jesus. Just real ugly stuff, she said. Uh, and her parents kept those letters from her daughter. That's good. But days later, when the news was quieting down, Michelle received a special letter in her box. Mm-hmm. This one was written on White House stationery, and it read, The White House, October 28th, 1961. Dear Michelle, I can't don't do, do JFK. it JFK. I don't want you to try. I'm trying to do that Boston thing. No. I was glad to get your letter about trying to stop the Russians from bombing the North Pole and risking the life of Santa Claus. I share your concern about the atmospheric testing of the Soviet Union, not only for the North Pole, but countries throughout the world, not only for Santa Claus, but for people throughout the world. However, you must not worry about Santa Claus. I talked with him yesterday, and he is fine. He he will be making his rounds again this Christmas. Sincerely, signed, John Kennedy. Wow. What a letter to get. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Letter to the president. Our, so cr- our current president would never do something like that. He can't read is the reason. That's probably part of it. I really don't. I it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be on Fox News, so he wouldn't know about it. Yeah, he is Billy. You know who he is, our current president, mm-hmm. Trump? He's Billy Madison. <laughs> he is. Yeah, his dad paid for him to go to school. That's true. And he never, they just they paid passed the teachers him on. to pass They probably him passed him on because he was such an asshole. Yeah. Like, that's what teachers do. If somebody's a big enough pain in the ass, they're like, again. no, just mo- keep, let him keep Get moving. I'm not having him back again this next year. Fuck that. F that noise. Yep. Or maybe it was just so much fun. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so. On Wednesday, November 1st, 1961, Andy Warhol stops making paintings based on comic strips after seeing similar works by Roy Lichtenstein. Mm-hmm. Instead... He paints 32 Campbell's soup cans. That's right. I remember that. You've heard of that? Yep. That's famous. That was when I painted it. Okay. Lichtenstein. I was a Lichtenstein girl for Halloween one time. What does that mean? 
Remember when I dressed up like a comic strip girl and I had the... Oh, yeah. That yeah. was clever. Yeah, that was a Lichtenstein like, girl. Yeah, comic. It looked like a comic book. Yeah. yeah. And you had like dots on your f- mm-hmm, like newsprint. face or something. That was kind of cool. Yeah. That was very um, innovative. Thanks, babe. You always, every Halloween party we go to, Amy's always the only person who's, the only woman who's not a slut. <laughs> that's true. I mean, not. I think that's not the stupidest saying, thing in the world. Yeah, I'm not saying everyone there is a slut, but every girl's Halloween costume is slutty. That's all they sell. And even then, they even have for children now. Like, we went to get our daughter stuff, and half the yeah. girl stuff are slutty outfits. It's awful. And she's fucking 10. Yeah. What the hell? And we wonder why we're in this goddamn society. All right. Sorry. Calm down. I got mad there for a minute. This misogynistic society that tells women they're objects and they have to just please men. All right, what's next? Tired of it all. What is next? <laughs> November 6th, 1961. Mm-hmm. We have a new number one song. All right. Are you ready for this one? This one's a great one. There's no way you'll know. They've all been great so far. You won't know this one. This is not Big really great. John. Oh, yeah, Big John. I know this one. Who sings it? Big Bad John. See him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed two forty-five. Is it like? I will give you my spleen. Is it like Mitch it Miller or something? No, I will rip my spleen out with my bare hands if you know who this is. Big bad John. I will rip out my spleen and shove it up God, my own I, ass. I can't think of Glenn, you know Glenn Miller. Nope. One more gas, and I'll still rip out my spleen with my bare hands and shove it up my own ass. He didn't say much. If you know it. And if you I don't know it. I really don't. Hi. You give up? Yeah. So no spleen up ass? No. Somebody said Jimmy Dean. New oh, I don't even know who that is. You the sausage guy? The sausage guy. No. Yeah, I swear. No. I swear to God, Jimmy Dean, the sausage guy, performed this song. No. And it was the number one song on the Billboard chart. He's also the founder of the Jimmy Dean Sausage Company. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. He performed that song. He was was also an actor. He was like in He was like everything. I thought he just made fucking sausage. Sausage. I don't yeah. know. He was like a, a performer. Me neither. You learn something new every day. I know. Jimmy friggin' Dean. That's nutty. Man, we need to bring that guy back to life. I guess. I'd like to resurrect Jimmy Dean. I don't know about you, but. there's I have some others on, higher on the list. Nah, Jimmy Dean, Randy Macho Man Savage, Jimmy Dean. That's about it. The world would be perfect with those two people in it. That'd be a great presidential ticket. All right. What's next? Savage Dean. Uh, um, I believe that brings us to November 8th, 1961. Okay. All right. So. While well, the Joey Bishop show was on. So Joey Barnes is the host of a TV talk show originating in New York. Each episode dealt with events of his personal and professional life as a celebrity. Many guest stars appeared on the series playing themselves as guests on Joey's talk show. That's fascinating. That's on NBC, the Joey Bishop show. And later on was the Bob Newhart show at 10 p.m. Okay. Well, Arthur Duperalt. Duperalt? I think. That doesn't sound right. He was an optometrist from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Okay. With me so far? Optometrist? Yes. From green, stupid, awful Green Bay, Wisconsin? Yes. He wanted to take his family and live for a year on a sailboat cruising around the world from island to island was his idea. Well, that's not a bad idea. How how big was his family? Well, I'll get there. What's his name again? Arthur Duperalt. That's kind of a dumb name. By 1961, he had become successful enough that he planned to take his wife, Joan, son, Brian, 14, Joan. and daughters, <laughs> Terry, Joe, 11, and Renee, 7, to oh. the Bahamas. Oh, okay. Bahama Mamas. 
So they planned to charter a yacht and spend a week sailing and then extend the trip if everything went well. Okay. They arrived at Fort Lauderdale. When you say everything went well, meaning there's no murders? Well, now, will you quit with the foreshadowing? I'm just assuming because that's all you ever talk about is rape. Oh, wait, probably multiple rapes. And then did you, did you, do you know this story? No, I don't know what you're even going to talk about. Okay. Could be an alien. So they arrived in Fort Lauderdale where they rented the Blue Bell. Fort Lauderdale, home of Drew Connolly. Woohoo! All right. The Blue Bell was a two masted sailboat. Right. And they hired John Harvey, a former Air Force pilot and experienced sailor, to captain the ship. That sounds like it'll be a fine. And Harvey's wife, Deanie, would also join the group on the Deanie? cruise. It's D E N E. What would you say? Denae? Oh, Deanie? yeah, it's definitely not Deanie. I would say. Denny? Denae. All right. Yeah, because Renee would be. R E N E. Deanie? Deanie? Oh, maybe it's Deanie. I don't know. On the morning of Wednesday, November 8th, the oh. Dup- you already said something. Yeah, the same day Joy Bishop show was on. Yes. And later that night, Bob Newhart was on. Yeah. Yes. The Duperalts <laughs> went aboard the Blue Bell to begin their voyage. Okay. The ship's engine came to life, and Captain Harvey steered the boat away from the dock. They sailed from the harbor into the Gulf Stream, which passes between Florida and the Bahamas. So on the morning of Wednesday, November 8th, yeah. the Duperalts went aboard the Blue Bell to begin their voyage. They so they okay. They're all the family is going on a trip on a sailboat. Yep. So Captain Harvey steers the boat away from the dock, and they sail from the harbor into the Gulf Stream, which passes between Florida and the Bahamas. Florida. Okay. So they leave off of Florida. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Fort. What is it? Where? Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale. So over the next four days, yeah, Harvey piloted the Bluebell east toward the island chain of Bimini. Okay. Never the, heard of it. The, Never heard of it. So they spent the week snorkeling and collecting shells on the beaches there. You know, snorkeling is just overrated. I know you think that. You know, it's if people like it. It's fun. I just, it's a lot of hand, it's a lot of coordination. You have to coordinate your breathing. And then, you know, as soon as I start doing it, I start picturing that movie where those people are out in the ocean forever by themselves. That's what you don't like about it. And I'm just like, I think I'm going to die or yeah. something. And so early Sunday... Um, yeah. do, oh, do, the 12th? Yes. November 12th? The 12th. Oh, <laughs> see, the same day that Lassie was on, and that particular episode was Lassie the Pied Piper, when Timmy undertakes breeding white rats to sell to a university, mm-hmm. a veterinary researcher to raise money, the rats begin to destroy the farm crops. Also, Timmy's parents, Ruth and Paul Martin, decide to spice things up in the bedroom no, by bringing in their neighbor... Cully Wilson, no. who shows them what a hot Carl is. No, this. <laughs> yeah. No, that's what it said. On IMDb. No, it's not that what was it was. The episode. I don't know. It's a great episode. <laughs> God. <laughs> All right. Do you know what a hot Carl? I is? do know what a hot Carl is. Thank you. Do? you. I'm I afraid. Actually, I I don't. I actually don't know what a hot. Carl I used is. to know. I can't remember. Okay. So anyway, you think that song, some but something that you used to know, is about hot Carls. Probably. Okay. So um, sorry. Anyway. So Duperalt and the Harveys stopped by the office of the village commissioner to fill out forms for leaving the Bahamas and heading back to the U.S. Okay, so you, the village commissioner in the so they made it to the Bahamas. Yes, and they were enjoying the Bahamas and they were scuba diving. Yes. And everything was great, and they had to fill out forms to go back to the That's U.S. Right. by boat. And so he Duperalt told the guy, "This has been a once in a lifetime vacation. We'll be back before Christmas." That okay. night, Dini, uh, however we want to say it, Dene prepared a dinner right. of chicken cacciatore and salad. And that's the mom. And chicken cacciatore, uh, what kind of a dish is that? What would you say? Is that a Greek dish? 
uh, probably Italian cacciatore. Well, what is cacciatore? I think it's just the sauce on the chicken. It's the kind of sauce on the chicken yeah. cacciatore. Okay. So like this would be so the last wait, meal. Listeners, email me at joe at history. No, we're not going to do that. Dot com and let me know what cacciatore is. Give some of your recipes. So it, this would be the last meal ever served on the Bluebell. What? The last meal ever? Do they just... they? They were fasting. So around 9 p.m., okay. Terry Joe headed below deck to her sleeping quarters in a small cabin she's at the back of the boat. Of, she's one of the daughters. That's right. The oldest daughter. Ordinarily, Renee slept there too, but on this night, her younger sister remained with her parents and brother on the deck in the cockpit. All right, the deck in the cockpit. In the middle of the night, Terry Joe wakes up by her brother yelling, Help, Daddy, help! Okay. She also hears brief running and stamping noises, then silence. So brief? she's hurt. They're below deck. She's below deck. Yep. Brief running and stamping noises. And then silence. Then she lay in her bed shivering, and she was disoriented and terrified. Oh, my gosh. Is it in the middle of the night? Mm-hmm. After about five minutes, she creeps out of her ca- out of her cabin. Yeah. She sees her mother and brother lying crumpled in a pool of blood in the main cabin. What? Her mother and her brother? Yes. This was the ca- This main part functioned as a kitchen and a dining room during the day and was converted into a bedroom at night. That's why uh, they were in there. But they were on the floor in a pool of blood. It, yeah. She knew instantly they were dead. Oh no! Slowly, she climbs the stairs, sticks her head out of the hatch. Yeah. She sees more blood and pool. More blood pooled on the starboard side of the cockpit, and possibly a knife. She can't. Rem- she couldn't tell for sure. Ugh. She climbed on deck and turned towards the front of the boat, and then yeah. suddenly Captain Harvey lunged at her and shoved oh. her down the stairs. Oh, he went crazy! Get back down there! He growled. Oh, so heart pounding, she averts her eyes from her mother and brother's bodies, returns Ugh. to her sleeping quarters, and crawls back into her bunk. Oh, I would be barfing right there. I'd be then barfing. she hears sloshing. Sloshing. Soon, oily smelling water is seeping into her cabin and covering the floor. Oh, no. So she realizes the ship is filling with water, but she's afraid to move. Oh, no. It's oily. Why is it oily? Because the, the, something's wrong with the ship. Oh. So suddenly, she sees the captain's form silhouetted in the cabin's doorway. Yeah? He had something in his hands, possibly his her brother's rifle, and oh, stood sh- looking down at her. This guy's gone crazy. They hired a crazy man to murder them. Then he turns and walks out of the cabin, and she hears him climb the stairs back to the upper deck. Okay. She doesn't know why he didn't kill her. Okay. With water lapping over the top of her mattress, she knew she had to abandon the cabin. Oh, my gosh. So she, by this time, it's waist deep. So she wades through this waist deep water to the stairs and climbs to the top again. Oh, my goodness. From, and her dad, she hasn't seen her dad, right? No. From the light of a bulb atop the boat's mainmast, she sees the ship's dinghy and rubber life raft were floating beside the boat on the port side. What would you say a dinghy is? It's like a, a lifeboat, I think. Or so, I don't know. I don't really know. Should we look it up? No. Okay. So Just, she calls out, is the ship sinking? And Harvey shouts, yes. Harvey's the... The crazy guy. The crazy guy killed everybody. Yes. He comes up from behind her. He pushes the line to the dinghy into her hands. Hold this, he shouts. Numb from shock, Terry Joe lets the line slip through her fingers. The dinghy slowly drifts away from the sinking bluebell, and Harvey jumps overboard to catch it. Terry Joe watches him swim after the dinghy as he disappears into the night. So she remembers there's this cork life float that was kept lashed to the top right side of the main cabin, yeah. which is now just barely above the water. Holy shit. So she's got to get into that main cabin, swim to it. So she scrambles to this float and quickly unties it, 
And just as it comes free, the boat deck sinks beneath her feet into the ocean. What? Half crawling, half swimming, she pushes the float into the open water. Holy shit. So as she climbs onto the float, one of its lines snags on the sinking ship. And for this minute, she and the float were being pulled underwater Ah, as the bluebell went down. Goodness gracious, it's a horror movie. Then the line comes free and the float with her on it pops back up to the surface. She huddles low on the float, afraid the captain might be lying in wait for her in the dark waters because she doesn't know where he went. crazy murderous guy for no reason is killing everybody. That's right. So she's on this raft, and she has no water, no food, and she's got this thin white blouse and pink pants on, nothing to protect her from the chill of the night. Uh, the moon had set, and heavy clouds denied her even the light of the stars. She, There's no way she makes it, y'all. There's no way. The odds are stacked. She could hear the moan of the wind but see nothing. Waves broke without warning, and the salt water would sting her eyes and her lips. So Yo, man. Waves are splashing over There's sharks in that water. Her. There's eels in that water. And then a sudden shower comes and drenches her, so she begins to shiver uncontrollably. Good Lord, as if it can't get any worse. The next morning is Monday. The sun drives the chill from her body, but she soon realizes it would bring a greater danger. I mean, Monday, November 13th? Yeah. At the same time the Danny Thomas show was on? Uh Ben Casey was on, Hennessy, mm-hmm. I've Got a Secret was on CBS, Pete and Gladys was on, uh, NBC pr- had Prices Right in primetime, yeah. uh, the 87th Precinct was on. That's right. Surfside 6, The Rifleman, Cheyenne, they okay. were all on TV. Yep, they were all on TV. All okay. right. <laughs> so the sun, so she realizes there's a greater danger with the sun here. Oh, because so now it's going to be too hot. As the day progresses, the temperature quickly rise, rises to 85 degrees, and the oh, sun man. begins to scorch her. Oh, no. And then the flimsy float is beginning to disintegrate, oh, exposing no. her legs and feet to the sharp teeth of these parrotfish that are oh, around. The fucking parrotfish always ruin everything. With each passing hour, her tongue became drier and her throat more parched. Oh, God, can you imagine just laying there? On Tuesday. Oh, man, in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, November, it was November, mm-hmm. November 14th, mm-hmm. 1961. There's no way this girl makes it, right? She could have been at home. If just that her dad hadn't taken her on that vacation, she'd be at home watching Ichabod and Me on CBS or The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis or on ABC. She could be watching Bachelor Father or Yours for a Song or on NBC. She could be watching Alfred Hitchcock's presents or the dick, that was a great show or the dick powell show okay so th- this but no small red plane circles overhead okay she watches it and waves at it for a long time with her blouse at one point it dives in her direction she waves frantically her heart pounding with hope the plane Please passes hope, directly man. over her close enough that she could see the details of its underside but at an angle that made it impossible for the pilots to see her oh no so the chances are slim that someone in a passing ship or plane would spot her her white float and blouse and blonde hair made it look like just another white cap oh, no. in the water. So she's floating on the in the Northwest Providence Channel, which soon would drift north with the Gulf Stream and then east, carrying her across the wide Atlantic to the British Isles. Oh, no. What? She went all the way to the British Isles? Well, that's where she would go that's if she, she kept floating. Yeah, right. Her dead body would be there by then. Yeah. So early that afternoon... She saw ghostly shapes about 30 yards from her float, just beneath the water's surface. Oh, boy. So her heart catches in her throat. The shapes come closer, and she can see that they're porpoises. 
So they stared up at her. She felt oddly comforted by the whooshing sound the creatures made as they came to the surface to breathe. They're just babies. They remained close by for hours. They really? swam like with her. Watching her? Swam like, with like swimming with her. Keeping her. Yep. Oh. As the sun broke through the clouds in the late afternoon, Terry Joe splashed some water over her scorched, tightened skin. The cool forests of Wisconsin and the cool waters of Green Bay seem so far away. The sun drops and finally sinks below the horizon. So Tuesday night brings back the darkness, but it also brings... The Dick Powell show. The Dick Powell show. And yeah. uh, relief to her body from the sun. Oh, yeah. No more heat. Yeah. As I can't believe she's still alive, man. So she starts dreaming. She's just shitting in the water. I don't she's know. Pissing and shit. She probably doesn't have much shit and piss. So this is the third night she's on this thing, dude. She she dreams that she's in the cockpit of an airliner coming in for a landing. She sees the lines of the landing lights standing out with surreal brilliance against the blackness. In the dream, she saw her father seated peacefully with a glass of red wine, and she heard oh, his voice call out to her, "Come on, Terry, Joe, we're leaving." So then Wednesday comes. Wednesday. Wednesday dawns. November fifteenth. Mm-hmm. Oh. On Wednesday, uh, November 15th, uh, that's the same day that during the day, mm-hmm. uh, the Bob Cummings show was on, uh, <laughs> Make a Face was on at noon, mm-hmm. uh, Who Do You Trust was another game show, American Bandstand was on. Okay. So uh, it gets hot very quickly on Wednesday. Search for Tomorrow was on too while it was getting hot. The um, glare of the sun caused her dry eyes severe pain, and all her muscles ached, and her skin burned through her blouse and pants. I wouldn't wish this on anybody, man. Her lips were rough and swollen. For most of the time, she had to balance rigidly on the edges of the unsteady float because much of its rope webbing had broken away. Oh, man. So now she started to hallucinate. Yeah, I bet. She imagines a tiny desert island with a solitary palm tree. No, I think most people would have given up at this point. And she tries, I would have. She tries paddling towards it, but then it disappears. I would have given up. So finally she falls unconscious. Oh, man, she's done. So when the sun rises on Thursday, she didn't even feel its burning rays. She was in a deep sleep close to the threshold of death. Oh, my goodness. Walls of water came at her one after another. Her raft was lifted to the top of steep cliffs, then lowered into dark valleys. So now only the faintest spark of life flickered. Mid-morning on her fourth day alone on the raft, however, she opened her eyes. This huge shadow loomed over her. Its rumble was so deep she could feel its pounding rhythm in her chest. She hallucinated that it was a whale. Oh, yeah. When it came closer, she saw heads and waving arms. She could faintly hear voices shouting. Finally, she felt herself suspended in space, and she felt strong arms lifting her up slowly. Oh, man. So when Julian Harvey was hired, so she was saved. She was saved by these people. Yes. So. Ah, she lived. When Julian Harvey was hired as skipper of the Bluebell, not yeah. a lot was known about his earlier life. Oh, of of killing random people on boats and then jumping away, leaving them to die in the ocean. He was 44 years old and a retired Air Force lieutenant colonel married to Mary Deany Jordan, yeah. an aspiring writer and former TWA flight attendant. Okay. The day after the Bluebell went down, the lookout on a Puerto Rico-bound oil tanker spotted a small wooden dinghy floating in the middle of the Northwest Providence Channel. Oh, what's a dinghy? When the captain pulled the tanker closer, a man in the dinghy yelled, My name is Julian Harvey. I'm master of the Bluebell. Oh, so they found him? Yeah. 
In the days that followed, Harvey told the Coast Guard in Miami that he oh. was the sole survivor of a grave accident. Oh, a bunch of lies. He's In the middle of the previous night, he reported a sudden squall damaged the sailboat. His wife, Dene, and the De Peralts were injured when the masts and rigging collapsed. And I didn't do any murdering nope. of anybody. Gas lines and the engine ruptured and the ship caught fire as it slowly sank. Harvey said he managed to launch the dinghy and raft to dive overboard, but tangled rigging trapped everyone else on board. So a few days later... He's uh, at the Sandman Hotel, and he hears that Terry Joe has survived. Uh-oh. He's got a killer. So the next day, a maid at the hotel saw blood on the sheets in Harvey's room. Oh. When she couldn't open the bathroom door, her manager called the police. They forced oh, no. the door open and found Harvey's bloody, lifeless body on the floor. Of He died of suicide. Oh, he killed himself? Yeah. Because he knew he would be he knew in she for was, it. Yep. So after being pulled from the ocean by an officer of the Greek freighter Captain Theo... Yeah. Terry Joe was taken by helicopter to a Miami hospital. Wow. A week after her rescue, officials questioned Terry Joe in her hospital bed. Her story disproved Harvey's account of the events. Yep. Her father, mother, brother, and younger sister, along with Danae Harvey, had been slaughtered aboard the Bluebell at the hands of Julian Harvey. Oh, man, that's terrible. The police suspect that Harvey killed his wife to collect money from her life insurance. Oh. And one theory suggests that Duperault caught Harvey in the act, prompting the other murders. Ah, so that's all what it was. Terry Joe returned to Green Bay to live with her father's sister and three cousins. Nearly 50 years later, in 2010, she finally revealed the details of the night her family was killed and her days spent drifting in open water in the book Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean. Oh, we got to read that book, y'all. I always believed I was saved for a reason, Terry told CBS News. If one person heals from a life tragedy after reading my story, my journey will have been worth it. Um, and there's pictures online. You can see, they took a picture of her floating in yeah, the ocean. Saw that picture, yeah. You that's can crazy. see it, and I got a lot of that information from a reader, Reader's Digest. A Reader's Digest is a is a quality publication, and my grandmother would concur. Would, would be very. <laughs> why is fan. it old people love Reader's Digest? Oh, my grandma loved Reader's Digest. Yes, old people are crazy for it. Yeah, they are. It's actually good. I had I was reading that for a while. I was into it. I gotta take a quick break. You gotta take a dump. No, I just. Amy got to take a dump, y'all. Hey, wonderful listeners. I really hope you're loving American Timelines. But did you know that you can actually get paid just for listening to this podcast? I know, it sounds crazy, but it's true. We just discovered this free new app called PodCoin, and it literally pays you to listen to podcasts. It doesn't make any sense, but it's true. Here's how it works. You listen to podcasts, you listen to anyway. You listen to podcasts and you earn PodCoin while you listen. Then you turn that PodCoin in for gift cards to places like Amazon or Starbucks. And if you're a good person, you can even donate that PodCoin to charity. The more you listen, the more you, the more you earn. I've been doing this, uh, listening to my own podcast even, and getting points for it. And I just got a $5 Amazon gift card that I can buy whatever I want from Amazon because Amazon has everything. So here's what you do. Download the app right now on iPhone or Android, and I have a special code for you. Simply use our code, TIMELINES, and you get 300 PodCoin just for signing up. That's TIMELINES. And if you listen to enough of us on there, you can get a cappuccino at Starbucks or an Amazon gift card like I did. I mean, with that Amazon gift card, you could buy um, sandals uh, or a thong, or you could buy sunglasses or deodorant. 
um, dog food. So go ahead and listen to us on this podcast uh, or virtually any podcast on PodCoin and sign up with the code TIMELINES. I swear it'll change the way you listen to podcasts. Wednesday, November 29th, 1961, Tom Sizemore is born in no. Detroit, Michigan. His mother, Judith, was a member of the city of Detroit ombudsman staff. Stop. And his father, Thomas Edward Sizemore, was a lawyer and philosophy professor. Who cares? He was raised Roman Catholic. I don't Steve, care about any of that. Steve Bishop cares. He loves Tom Sizemore. All right. What's next? Steve Bishop is a friend of mine who has a Prince Albert. Stop it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Saturday. No, this one's good. Saturday, December 2nd, 1961, mm-hmm. something happened. Okay. Um, Laura Boulion died. Okay. Do you know who Laura Boulion no. is? Nope. You know what the Boulion Cube? Have you ever heard of a Boulion Cube? Yes. It, I don't think it has anything to do with her. Oh, okay. Uh, but Laura Boulion, that's how I'm getting the pronunciation. Oh. Boulion Cube. The female out, she was a female outlaw member of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids gang. The Wild Bunch. In 1961? No, she died in 19... She lived all the way to oh, 1961. God. Isn't that crazy? Yes. So she she was born in October 1876. Holy shit. She was an outlaw of the Old West. Most sources indicate that she was born of German and Native American heritage in Knickerbocker near Mertzon in Iron County, Texas. The exact day of her birth is unclear. Data in the 1880 and 1900 federal con- uh, census suggests a Laura Bullion might have been born on a farm in the township of Pelarm near Conway in Faulkner County, Arkansas. Uh, anyway, in the, 1800, in the 1890s, Laura Bullion was a member of Butch Cassidy's gang. Her cohort, cohorts were fellow outlaws, including the Sundance Kid, Black Jack Ketchum, and Kid Curry. Wow. For several years in the 1890s, she was romantically involved with the outlaw Ben Kilpatrick, the tall Texan, a bank and train robber and an acquaintance of her father who had been an outlaw as well. In 1901, Bullion was convicted of robbery and sentenced to five years in prison for her, her participation in the Great Northern Train Robbery. She was released in 1905 after serving three years and six months. She moved to Memphis, Tennessee in 1918, posing as a war widow and using assumed names. She supported herself as a household and as a householder and seamstress, and later as a drapery maker, dressmaker, and interior designer. So she gave up the outlaw the life? The outlaw life. Her fortunes declined in the late 40s, at which time she was without an occupation. In 1961, she died of heart disease at the Shelby County Hospital in Memphis. Wow. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. She lived all that long. And then Wednesday, December 6th, 1961, Syracuse running back Ernie Davis was the first ever African-American to win the Heisman Trophy. Oh, that's great. He was drafted number one overall in 1962, but was diagnosed with leukemia and later died before playing at single down in the NFL. Oh, that, that sucks. That sucks. Yeah. And then Monday, sucks. December 11th, 1961, the Mike Douglas Show debuted it was an american daytime television talk show hosted by mike douglas he had a talk show yeah mike douglas from 60 wait a minute who mike mike douglas from 60 minutes uh no you're thinking yeah yeah because it wouldn't be mike douglas the actor no not michael Douglas. douglas no mike douglas yeah mike hold on 
He's a singer. Oh. He was a singer, Mike Douglas, known for... So it's not the guy from 60 Minutes. <laughs> uh, American Is Big Band Mike singer, on entertainer, talk show host. Am I? No, you're thinking of Mike Wallace. Mike Wallace. Oh. Yeah, so I was like, ah, okay. Mike Douglas was a singer. He sang... Uh, uh, oh, gosh, what songs? He sang... Uh, Big band crap. Probably tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree tie or something. yellow ribbon. Around. No, I don't know. He sang big band. Shit. All right, it doesn't uh, matter. Anyway, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Nope. Anyway, but this is when the Mike Douglas show started. It was initially only aired in Cleveland during oh. the first couple of years, following by followed by an expansion to Philadelphia and then nationwide. It's pretty sweet. I don't know why I. Included yeah, Douglas I don't know why show. you did either. And then in that same day, uh, we have a new number one song on the a Billboard chart by the Marvelettes. Are you familiar with them? Mm, maybe. Do Marvelettes sing? No. You want to guess? No. You don't want to guess? Please, Mr. Postman. Oh, my God. How would you guess that? Really? Do you know who sings this? Marvelettes. I mean, who? What? What the singer's name is? <laughs> oh, I is can't remember. Is it Georgia Dobbins or Gladys Horton? Georgia Dobbins. No, Gladys Horton. Duh. This is the first Motown song to reach the number one position. This is a great on the song. Billboard Hot 100 charts. This is a good song. The end of '61 had some really good music. Except Big Bad John. Yeah, but the rest of them are all been good. You're right. Uh, in April 61, the Marvelettes, then known as the Marvels, mm-hmm. arranged an audition for Barry Gordy's label. Marvel Marvel's original lead singer, Georgia Dobbins, needed an original song for their audition. And she got a blues song from her friend, William Garrett, mm-hmm. which she then reworked for the group. Dobbins left the group after the audition and was replaced by Gladys Horton. Gordy then renamed the group the Marvelettes. This recording features lead singer Gladys Horton hoping that the postman has brought her a letter from her boyfriend. Yes. Accompaniment is provided by the Funk Brothers, including Marvin Gaye on the drums. Sweet. Yeah, listen to those drums. You can tell. Listen to him. You can tell it's Marvin Gaye. You cannot. Listen to the drum horn. Yeah, that was a Mar- Marvin Gaye. That's a total Marvin Gaye drum right there. Yeah, that's a good song. Mm-hmm. That's a really good song. We're starting. Motown is great. I mean, yeah. And then Thursday, December 14th, 1961, the fourth highest grossing movie came out. It was called El Cid. The fabled Spanish hero Rodrigo Diaz overcomes a family vendetta. And court intrigue to defend Christian Spain against the Moors. I don't starring remember this. Charlton Heston, Sophia Loren, and Raph Valoni. Yeah, I don't remember it. Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren reportedly got off on the wrong foot early in the filming, which set a bad tone for their working relationship for the rest of the shoot. Oh, burn. Heston later said, I regret the way I behaved toward Loren I bet he was a dick. during filming. Feeling in res- retrospect that he'd been unprofessional and unfair to her and wished he'd been kinder and less stubborn towards her. He's such an asshole. Charlton Heston? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> wasn't he the guy? Wasn't he big on a nut? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there was a from guy, my cold dead hands and all that. Yeah, there's a guy I went to school with named Mike Waymer that did a great Charlton Heston impression. impression. <laughs> all right. What's anyway, next? Charlton Heston was a Democrat then, and he was unable to campaign for JFK due to the long filming schedule of this. Oh, so he changed. That? Yeah. And then December 18th, 1961, we have the last number one song for 1961 on the Billboard charts, and you surely, surely know this song. What is it? Oh, yeah. This must be in some kid's movie or something recently. Why? Because the kids at the middle school are always singing this. No, probably. It must be some kid's movie. Because why? How else would they know it? You don't think the kids were doing a research on 1961 Billboard songs? No, I don't think they were. Well, this song. There's some cool stuff about this song. So we all know this song. Yes. I'm gonna turn down a little bit. So. This is originally written and recorded, originally written and recorded by Solomon Linda mm-hmm. under the title Mabubi for the South African Gallo Records Company in 1939. Wow. Linda's original was written in Zulu, while the English version's lyrics were written by George David Weiss. Mm-hmm. The song was adapted and covered internationally by many pop and folk revival artists in the 50s and 60s, including the Weavers, Jimmy Dorsey, and many others. And, and 1961 became a number one hit in the U.S. as adapted in English. And this is the best-known version by the doo-wop group The Tokens. Yes. This is definitely the best-known version. Yes. Mabube was the original mm-hmm. name of the song. It was mm-hmm. written in the 1920s. A South African singer of Zulu origin who later worked for the Gallo Record Company mm-hmm. in Johannesburg as a cleaner and a record packer. Uh and spent weekends performing uh, with the Evening Birds, a musical ensemble, mm-hmm. uh, under, that he and his musicians would record several songs whenever they could in there mm-hmm. and incorporate a call-response p- pattern common among many sub-Saharan African ethnic groups, including the Zulu. Mm-hmm. And so I found the original recording. Mm-hmm. And so the original name of the song was Mabube, mm-hmm. which means the lion, Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where they get a wimboe. They heard it wrong and started oh. calling it a wimboe. A yeah. wimboe. It's mabube. Mm-hmm. But they, they spell M B U B E. Mabube. Mabube. You sure that's how they say it? Yep. I looked it up on, uh, you know, In the internet or whatever. But here's the original recording in Zulu. It's really cool. Listen to this. 1939. <laughs> Oh, 
That's pretty cool. Yeah, isn't it cool? All right. That gives you the feel. Yep. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I like to hear the original versions of those. That is cool. I got to take a cool, I, in college I took an African-American history, uh, African-American music history class. Yeah. It was the best ever because basically any song you've ever heard and known Go, comes from that. Comes from original African songs that, mm-hmm. um, or African-American songs or slave songs. I mean, Everything was just yeah. stolen from, and it sounds so much more raw and better and whatever. But uh, that's just cool. I didn't know anything about yeah. that until I heard that. Um, it's pretty cool, but it's cool. And then Tuesday, December nineteenth, nineteen sixty-one, Judgment at Nuremberg came out. Oh, a movie in, in court in occupied Germ- Germany tries four Nazi judges for war crimes, mm-hmm. starring Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster, and Richard. Widmark. I've never seen that. You haven't? Mm-mm. I haven't either. Spencer Tracy's 11-minute closing speech was filmed in one take. Oh. 11-minute wow. speech. That's pretty good. Maximilian Schell's Oscar for Best Actor makes him the lowest billed lead category winner in history. He's billed fifth after Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster, Richard Widmark, and Marlene Dietrich. Oh, wow. And many of the actors in this film did so for a fraction of their usual salary because they felt the subject matter was so important. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to see that. I haven't seen that. Want to watch it right now and and record it and record us watching it? No. Well, Sunday, December 24th, 1961, the 1961 American Football League Championship game was a rematch of the first AFL title game between the Houston Oilers and the San Diego Chargers. Formerly the Los Angeles Chargers. Mm-hmm. It was played. I didn't know they used to be the Los Angeles Chargers. They they are now. I don't know if you know this, but they are now the Los Angeles Chargers again. Oh, they are. Yeah, I thought it was for the first time. It's weird. They've been in San Diego be. forever. Yeah, and I was like, oh, they don't belong in LA. It's terrible. Los Angeles Chargers. I hate it. But apparently, they originally were there. So boom. It was played on December 24th at Balboa Stadium in San Diego, California, and the Oilers were three point favorites. Do you know who won? Uh, the Chargers. No, duh. Oilers won 10 to 3. <laughs> Sorry. You <laughs> fucker. <laughs> I am a fucker. And uh, and then on uh, Christmas Day, mm-hmm. we got some popular Christmas gifts. Okay. Do you have some toys I, you want to talk there's about? There's not a whole lot. Well, you while you tell talk through your stupid toys and crap, mm. I'm gonna play a commercial for a toy that is super awful and creepy. And the uh, the first year they were that was available was 1961. Okay, so there's there are a lot of dolls. There's Cupid dolls, yeah, which are ugly and weird. They're crazy. There's Pollyanna was what a doll and Briquette, and they are both terrifying looking. Ryan Briquette? No, Briquette. Oh, you know who Ryan Burkett is? Also, Betsy Wetsy doll. Little shout out to the music video podcast, Ryan Burkett and Chris Coffin. Um, that's right. Um, Betsy Wetsy was a doll that was very popular back then as okay. well. Um, yeah. She wets her pants. Yeah. Too bad they don't have uh, Mitzi Shitsy. <laughs> <laughs> Shits her pants. 
And he just fills it with pudding, mm. chocolate pudding that the kids can eat. You can eat the shit. They had a lot of generic, like a dollhouse, a playhouse. Uh, they had a Johnny Reb cannon, big 30-inch Johnny Reb cannon fires plastic I mean, cannonballs. You know Let's just stop because you're not going to top what I have. No, I'm not. I know Raggedy it's not a competition. Ann, Shirley Temple doll. All right, you tell me. All right. Listen to this commercial. This is the Remco Baby Laughs a Lot. Oh, she's the creepiest doll I've ever seen. It's like Chucky. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, you can look that up on YouTube. It is creepy as hell. Look up "Baby Laughs a Lot" commercial on YouTube. And even the kids are like hallucinating, the and they're like, are, like they're flipping around, they're flipping their heads around like they're going crazy. Like, yeah, that's that's creepy. That's the worst thing I ever saw. How'd you find that? Um, listener, one of our listeners sent that in. Uh, uh, they tweeted and messaged us at Joe at HistoryForJerks dot com. Brandon, oh, yeah. Brandon, listener, Brandon Wilhelm. All right. Shout out. He actually was a guest on this show once, and we talked about movies. Oh, that's right. And the audio was terrible because I can't figure out how to record a phone call very good. Anyway, he lives in Chicago, and he spends a lot of time with the Green Lady. And watching birds. And he loves birds. Like, he'll stop, push people out of the way to look at a goddamn bird. Okay. Is that it? Are we done? No. One more thing. Okay. Let's hear it. Oh, you didn't say this, but this is the first year that the Lego Lego building sets were oh. available. Stratego, uh, slip and slide water slides. First year that they you were. I wonder why they weren't on that one website. I, I don't pulled know up. trolls. And then on Sunday, December thirty first, nineteen sixty one, the last day of the year, the National Football League Championship game. Because oh, you cares? know this was before that Super Bowl. They didn't I have know. the I NFL know. and the AFL. So this was the twenty ninth title game. Played at New City Stadium, later known as Lambeau Field in Green Bay, Wisconsin, on December 31st, uh, with an attendance of 39,029 people. Mm-hmm. This was a matchup of the Eastern Conference New York Giants and the Western Conference champion Green Bay Packers. The home team <laughs> Green Bay Packers were a three-and-a-half-point favorite. So that girl was floating in the ocean while her, I guess it was before her team yeah. won. Yeah, she was uh, back by then. Packers won 37 to nothing. Ray Nitschke and Boyd Dollar and Paul Hornig were on leave from the U.S. Army, and Hornig scored 19 points, a touchdown, three field goals, and four extra points for the Packers. And it means nothing MVP to me. MVP of the game. Well, back then it's weird for a kicker. Like, now kickers just kick, and they don't score extra points and touchdowns. Yeah, that's so true. That's pretty crazy. Anyway, he was awarded a 1962 Chevy Corvette from Sports Magazine. Sweet. Do they give cars? Vince Lombardi, it was like... Do they give cars to football players on a regular basis, or was that something they did did back then? Yeah, they still do. They still give them... Now they give them like a Hyundai. Hyundai Sonata. Oh. (laughs) Now they give them like a a Hyundai fancy one, whatever. Elantra. No, I don't know what's a fancy Hyundai. Don McAllister drives a Hyundai Sonata. All right. Anyway, I'm going to now name everyone I know and what cars they drive. No, we're not going to do that. We are going to say goodbye. (laughs) 
it, it is time to be done. And um, yeah, this has been a long episode. Yeah, Sorry, everybody, go. but it was a lot of interesting stuff. You know, that's right. And, um, and we're not good at editing. We just dive deep into the minutia. Be sure to listen and subscribe and subscribe. five stars, please. If yeah, you listen can. to us on Podcoin. You get paid. All right, it's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Yeah, I love Matt Truman sexually. Don't tell him. Matt Truman, buy his wanna, albums. I don't want to weird him out, but he's attractive. Plus, he's got great music. And great boobs. Oh, I love his boobs. All right. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.
Mexican Time Lord.